0: Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 309. And with that number, we'll give a shout out to the 309th draft pick in NWSL history, who has not been selected yet. So in the history of the league, we've seen a total of 296 players selected in the January college draft. Next month, we'll see another 40 players drafted. And the player who ends up the 309th player in NWSL draft history will be selected by Sky Blue, the club that currently holds the 13th overall pick in the 2021 college draft. For the complete draft order and other details, check out nwslsoccer.com. And you can also access the full history of the NWSL draft all on one spreadsheet at the WOSO Nerdlings page of KeeperNotes.com. All right, two chats today. First with entertainment lawyer Kelsey Trainer. I've talked with her before. She gave me a great update on the U.S. National Team settlement of part of their lawsuit with U.S. Soccer and what's going to happen to to the rest of the lawsuit. We we touch on some other issues as well. And then I talked to Travis Clark from TopDrawerSoccer.com, which. Tracks a lot of the high school recruiting into college and also college rankings, uh, you know, and players they think that are going to get drafted out of college. Uh, It's such a strange time right now with the college landscape all over the place, really. (laughs) And same for recruiting and, you know, a lot of different things happening with the championship Tournament for NCAA going to be held in the spring, so we we talk about a lot of what ifs uh, from the college perspective and also from the perspective of a player trying to decide whether or not she's de- going to declare for the NWCL draft. And of course, between those two chats is a Jen Splainer segment on what else the 2021 NWCL draft order. So. Enjoy this episode, and don't forget to follow me on Twitter at MixZone with two Xs and at KeeperNotes. All right, Jen Cooper, The Keeper here with Kelsey Trainer, the very professional lawyer who works in entertainment law and also covers legal issues for Equalizer Soccer. So Kelsey, I know you just can't stop paying attention to women's soccer and... And I love that about you, um, but I love that you also have some legal expertise to help me and my listeners understand what the announcement this week from US Soccer really means because it sounds like some really good things are happening and it also sounds like a lot of things are still TBD. So explain it to me like I'm an eighth grader. Um, <laughs> the, the good things, wow. I mean, there, there, there's a settlement, there is one part of a trial that's gonna be avoided, yes?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, basically, Tuesday afternoon, U.S. Women's National Team and U.S. Soccer uh, filed a proposed settlement uh, for the working conditions part of the equal pay lawsuit. So that's flights, venue, support staff, hotel. Um, They settled that part, essentially. Uh, There's some, you know, kind of legal jargon stuff that has to happen. It needs to be approved, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, they came to an agreement. Um. So that part of the lawsuit's over. So now that that part ha- is resolved, uh, the U.S. Women's National Team, the players, can finalize the judge's decision on the equal pay portion, which was dismissed by the judge, uh, if you remember, in May of this year. Um, uh-huh. And they can now appeal that portion, right? Because when that happened, they were saying, appeal, appeal, appeal. But turns out the whole case at that time wasn't dismissed. They still had the rest of it to go, which they now settled Um, So now they can move forward with appealing the judge's decision on the equal pay portion of the case.
0: Well, and let's talk about uh, those parts of the settlement, because those are, even though they're not compensation related, those are huge in terms of the day-to-day life of a national team player. Um, That it means that when they're traveling, uh, they're uh, what, I guess, subject to the same amount of, you know, corporate flights. That the men's yeah. team are, right? Yeah, and so that the venues the, have to be uh, yeah. equipped, the, the venues have to be equivalent, the hotel accommodations have to be equivalent. And I thought it was really interesting too, in terms of staffing, that the number of staffers, now they did allow that the kind of staff could be different depending on the individual needs of each team, right? But they're saying, hey, if the US men have 20 support staff, the US women should have 20 support staff. I thought all that was huge.
1: It is huge. And it's it's those quality of life things that, uh, you know, at the end of the day is not a 60 plus million dollar payment that, you know, the, the equal pay portion was essentially what they were, you know, asking for, but those things are so important to any athlete in general. And then the fact that they weren't equal to what the men's national team had to begin with is, is huge. So those are things that are quality of life, obviously for an athlete, uh, you need to have uh, proper accommodations. You need to be able to have hotels that are decent, right? And so, n- not only now will they be decent, they'll be top quality. They'll uh, be playing on grass for almost all of the games. Equal charter flights. Um, so, when you take that feeling of not feeling uh, valued out of the equation. Uh, one, they can focus on play. And obviously they're already really good at that. And then two, their arguments going forward are all about money and pay. Um, So it's, it's huge um, in terms of what they've won. It's, it's so important. Um, But it's also so important for any, uh, any negotiations going forward. Um, You know, obviously their CBA runs out in December, 2021. So, Um, You know, they don't have to worry about this stuff because another aspect of this or two extra things about this is there's a reporting uh, aspect of it. So they U.S., the U.S., the Federation has to report um, compliance with these uh, equal measures of hotels and accommodations and flights, etc. And then there's also another uh, part of the settlement that if U.S. soccer and the men's national team agree to a policy on any of these four topics, it differs from uh, what this settlement is, the women's national team can adopt that new men's national team policy over the existing one. So it's basically like, hey, if the men's national team gets a uh, better deal in the future, the women's national team can also get that as well. So that's huge without
0: without having to immediately renegotiate a CBA or anything.
1: Exactly, it's in this settlement agreement uh, going forward. Um, so you know, again, all that stuff is kind of taken care of, and now going forward, they can, you know. Argue pay, and uh, I think we talked about this the last time I was on when the the uh, summary judgment kind of was was tossed out by the judge. Um, you know, there's so many different aspects to this case, but the judge dismissing that actually laid out the groundwork on how to f- win a future equal pay case, right? So, say they go forward and negotiate a new collective bargaining agreement that is very similar to the men's national team, and they're still paid less. Well, the judge dismissing that last time saying that the CBAs were too different to compare. Now, going forward, they could possibly be comparable. And if the women are still being paid less, then they would win an Equal Pay Act claim. Um, so it's it's all so interesting going forward. But, uh, but the working condition stuff, I, I think, is not to be undervalued.
0: Well, and I always find it interesting when talking to someone that I, that I've just met and they hear that I'm involved in soccer. one of the topics they often bring up is, "Ooh, equal pay lawsuit and and i I try to explain it. it's like it's not as easy as just yes, they need to be paid more, that there's so many layers to it and details to it, and that it's it's not simple. Right. Uh, but, but this yeah. this settlement, I think, is is huge this week. And like you're talking about now, it's really just uh, the last part. Am I right? Is just it's only the equal pay part left.
1: Yeah. And there's I've grouped this into two two different parts. There's the equal pay part in terms of appealing that. Right. And that's going back to the argument that the judge also said was that. You know that you couldn't compare these uh, two collective bargaining agreements. Well, the women go back and say, actually, yes, you can compare them. And so, if they go that route and continue on with an appeal, they can actually change law, not just for themselves, but for how women everywhere and how their contracts and negotiations are viewed uh, compared to men. Right? If they can change the standard to. Well, if you look back historically, and women have been negotiating from the parking lot while men have been negotiating from second base. Uh, yeah, if that's unequal in the eyes of the law, then you're going to have a lot more uh, equal pay lawsuits. So that to me is the one aspect of it, which is kind of the all the back pay uh, from, you know, the, the past national team players. And then to me, you have it going forward, which is that they can really negotiate a new collective bargaining agreement that is very on par with the men. If not, you know, I believe the men's national team, they don't have a CBA right now. If I'm I'm, am I correct in that? I'm, I'm not. Entirely I think correct, so. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, technically, there could be one collective bargaining agreement that essentially applies to both of them. And, you know, that could also be equal. So uh, there's two aspects of the equal pay part to me that are, you know, kind of past and future, uh, both equally important. I don't know if we'll get all the way with the appeal, but who knows, they might.
0: Well, speaking of the, the the past part of it, um, you know, reading what Cindy Parlow Cohn talked about, how you know it's like it would put US soccer in a bind if they had to fork over sixty million plus because really the uh the lack of equivalent funds is is coming from FIFA, right? FIFA, here's FIFA's bonus money after Women's World Cup, here's FIFA's bonus money after men's World Cup. They're only able to give those bonuses to the men because of the money coming from FIFA. Um, So how does the team negotiate that past stuff, or is it more important to negotiate the future stuff?
1: I think that, I think that to have something come from the past stuff is important uh, in theory. Um, I think it would be important for kind of the movement of equal pay, et cetera, et cetera. But I honestly think going forward, um to be able to negotiate uh, a collective bargaining agreement that is equivalent to the men right the the, the big issue with the past collective bargaining agreements was that you know the women's one had more guarantees right because and the men's had more kind of performance based you know, bonuses, right. but it was obviously right. for more money. Right. So the women, the, the judge in the case, uh, the, you know, part of the reason he dismissed the equal pay thing was like, well, if you put the men's national team um, under the woman's uh, collective bargaining agreement, the, the men would have made less or something like that. Well, right. Because the men don't win and the women do. And that's, you know, the part of the reason is that the, in order for the women to earn anywhere near the men, they've had to win where the men just have to show up. Um, and so, and I then think you have
0: schedule differences too, like just right. the cycles of, of when games are played, how many games are played, and that stuff is not necessarily within teams' controls.
1: Exactly. And so, I think actually, you know, I was very impressed personally with Cindy Parlacone's statement. I mean, obviously, it's a huge <laughs> difference from just, you know, the statements of US soccer from, you know, March, you know, prior to. Uh, Carla's mm-hmm. resignation. I mean, that was just this year. I think we need to remember that too. Like that was just <laughs> this year.
0: <laughs> it feels like um, a decade ago. It does. It
1: does. <laughs> but it, well, that was not even a full year ago. So, um, you know, the tone is so different and I think that she makes a really good point in her statement. I think she talked about, um, I think she talked about the FIFA money. And realistically, she's like, that's just not something we can come up with. Um, And I think that's fair. And I think that the players, if you've got more trust between the players and the players association and U S soccer with, with her at the helm, um, you can have those real, realistic conversations, um, you know, having that and then also having, you know, the working conditions under control. I think, you know, it's just better going forward all around.
0: I I like the idea of, you know, maybe Cindy Parlocone leading the charge, getting other federations together to kind of force FIFA to change because right. she talked about, you know, for change their prize money and I think even more importantly change their investment in the game. I mean, people have heard me say before I get so frustrated where people will have a one day women's football something and go, "See, look, we did this." It's like Right. But the rest of the time is football and you're not including women in that. It's like women's football should not be a specialty category. Right?
1: yeah no I, I think you make a great point and I think that that's also something that if if u.s soccer is going to make a concerted effort to put pressure on FIFA I think the u.s women's national team players are going to be all about that um and I think you know u.s soccer having the position and it does in in the soccer community that's huge right because that pressure was not there before clearly um and so I thought that was really important also to for for her to say and for them to say and you know, she's someone who has been on the other side of this fight, right? Like she yes. started this fight, right? So that, that can't <laughs> be undervalued. It can't be undersold how important that is. I mean, it's it's really reminiscent to me of Kathy Engelbert coming in to the WNBA, uh, you know, this past year as commissioner. And, you know, they had to negotiate a new collective bargaining agreement. And you know, the WNBA players didn't have a lot of really good things to say about the WNBA prior to last year. Um, and she basically came in and was like, what are the things that are important to you? And they had a conversation, she listened and she did almost all of the things to show the players, like, let's build that trust back. Let's, because you can't have a real, you know, negotiations if you have no trust between the two sides. And I think that's what's happening right now. And then that's when, you know, the players uh, can say, great, you know, we can't get everything that we want. That's business. Right. And then the uh, U.S. soccer can go back. like We can't get everything we want either, but that's also business. Um, and so I think that that's so important. Um, and again, just can't be understated to have somebody in a position who uh, kind of knows that the plight and the fight that you're going for.
0: Well, and Cindy Parlow, when she got her first cap back in January 1996, that was basically like on the cusp of the very first uh, CBA and strike and everything uh, in the history of the women's national team where, you know, U.S. soccer was telling them, oh, we're not going to give you a bonus unless you win a gold medal. And, you know, um, so she literally grew up with that, right? I I can imagine it. I can imagine yeah. a, a shy, a, a tall, but very shy Cindy Parlow at 18 coming into U.S. National Team Camp and hearing Fowdy and, and all those players exactly. talk about this. Yeah. Yep. Making, making a huge impression. And I also wonder, you know, what's your perspective on how this settlement and whatever happens with the lawsuit going forward, how it can affect uh, the treatment of women at other federations?
1: You know, that's super interesting and I've actually been wanting and have been looking up, um, some other federations to compare because I don't, I don't know enough about that. You know, I obviously have been looking a lot about Australia to me, which is like one of the one, the federations and, uh, that's doing a lot, uh, for women. Um, and I think that, you know, the U S women's national team and having, the federation actually support everything that they're fighting for being the best team in the world is a game changer i think that every other federation i don't think they'd have any choice but to follow suit um because then it's just like really lonely at the top and you know what's the i I think too when people see that there's so much money to be made in women's soccer internationally Mm -hmm. like let's not forget that that we've seen it, you know, look at soccer and women's sports in general this year. Um, there's so much money to be made. Um, and so, you know, I think that's something that speaks to a federation, whether or not they care about, you know, <laughs> equal rights or equal pay. <laughs> money well, I, I, love,
0: I love the backlash that Australia saw after they're like, here's our new away kit, but we won't have right. it for the women for a year. People are like, what? Yes. And, it, yep. and it's, It's a mindset that I feel like it's changing. There's still a lot of, um, you know, work that has to happen. But that, like you're saying, there is money to be made. I've run into people before saying it's like, but men's sports makes more money than women's sports. I'm like, only because no one's tried to really monetize it. And I know there's people that, that see the growth of women's sports as a threat to men's sports. And it doesn't have to be, right? Like, this is why Seth Blatter back in the day uh, said the future of football is feminine, not because he's open-minded, but because he knew that they had maxed out really the male registrations that they could get for soccer worldwide. But there's still so many women, you know, who who could be playing. And on the merch side, you know, which most people know is, is one of my favorite parts of soccer, I'm still frustrated that it's like, you know, why can't I get a women's cut in a large enough size of this? Or why isn't, you know, this player's kit available? And I've been so happy to see the, the the huge leaps that NWSL and all the clubs have made in terms of making more and more merch available. And I know there's still stuff, you know, that they want to get done, right? Because right. It, you, you, if you're trying to grow a business, you should never say no to someone who wants to give you money right
1: <laughs> i mean I, you know i'm no genius but turns out you know that that seems right to me um and it, you're exactly right in terms of like i've literally been like i will hand you money take my money but it's not there and you know we're we're it, there's people think of so many people the wrong people think of women's sport as uh you know this charity case or whatever it's not it's an right. investment with an roi that you know when you go back to um you know, the start of the NBA, even I believe that they were talking about uh, David Berry, who's a sports uh, economist, uh, has a book coming out and he was saying like they testified before Congress that the people that were started the NBA about how, you know, it's not for profit. It's not to make money, but it's for sport because they weren't making money. You know, like, like anything else, if you invest in a, if you start a restaurant, you're not going to make any money back till five, for at least five years. It's the same at thing as anything else. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's the same thing as anything else. You got to put in the money. And we're starting to see people doing that. Um, you know, it, it's got to happen at the much bigger, larger level. You know, I think there's obviously so many gaps uh, in in Europe, that they're, you know, you can't be, uh, you can't say, you know, you'll never walk alone, and then not have your women's facility, or you know, not have anything <laughs> for. That is a specific, you know, uh, whatever to uh, Liverpool, but. But well,
0: yeah um. <laughs> Well and, and of course it's easy for us to see what Liverpool is or isn't doing, but you know where I want to see a change is all the smaller clubs, both in the FAWSL, you know in in Frances League, in in Frauen Bundesliga, the ones where we know those clubs still aren't fully professional, right right The, the, the clubs that are getting hammered, you know if Leon plays them, they get hammered 8 0 right Like there's still so much. Potential. I think that's our. Um, I think
1: that's our next big piece is like comparing all of these uh, other international federations and the women's side and and seeing how they all compare. I think we need to get that uh, get that going.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, we're we're at this great place in the history of women's soccer where a lot of these things are starting to solidify. You know that like women's Champions League, like that actually, you know, CBS Sports actually showed it right, and that. Um, they're going to start selling those rights. It used to be that UEFA just said, okay, whoever is the home team, you can sell the rights, right? Like they're actually right. trying to market the rights because there's all of us going like, I want to watch that. How do I watch that? I don't want to watch it on YouTube two days later, right? Um yep. There's just, there's so much potential. And at the same time, I feel like the calendar is maturing that, you know, we're getting those leagues, who knows, down the line, we could actually see a CONCACAF, you know, Women's Champions League once you have some other countries, you know, with, with stronger leagues, um, you know, and, and as the merchandise is coming into place, the TV rights are slowly coming into place, like all of those other pieces. And, you know, it's easy to say it, but rising tide lifts, lifts all boats and it
1: does it's 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 not a cliche it's literally uh, i mean when you look at when you actually look at a rising tide and see all the boats <laughs> lifting, like it, <laughs> it actually happens and so you know it, it's not just a cliche it's not just a saying it actually happens and so you know we're seeing that happen and it's just you know people smartening up and also women being being in more positions with capital Uh, With, you know, a good amount of capital to invest in it, because, you know, to me, that's also the the next part of it is, you know, not just having women's sports be, you know, grow and continue to grow, but having women in sport in all areas uh, continue to rise and, uh, you know, kind of continue in those more powerful positions. I just bought a Miami Marlins sweatshirt because of the new GM that they had (laughs) that they hired. (laughs) I don't care about the Miami Marlins at all, but I was like, I'm going to rock your sweatshirt because you guys have a woman as your GM. Like that's to me is those are the things that are happening that are so important.
0: Well, and seeing, you know, Angel City FC come on board with a lot of women investors, um, you know, that that is still, you know, a big part of not just sport, but any business in this country that there's there's not a lot of female representation. So I really like the idea of women, especially sport women going, all right, I'm going to put my money back into soccer.
1: Yep. You know, that's, oh, I love that's, it. That's, that's a, a huge, fan. I huge I got my tournament. Angel City gear as well. You know, I got it all. <laughs> Again, I will send you my money. Just make the merch. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> send me a link. I will send yep. you my money. Well, Kelsey, thank you so much for taking the time to explain the settlement, the lawsuit, um, and just talk women's soccer with you. Always appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Time for little Jen's Blaining. This segment will be about the 2021 NWSL draft order. That's the college draft coming up in January. It will be streamed live on NWSL's Twitch channel on Wednesday, January 13th, starting at 7 p.m. Eastern. Normally, the draft would be held at the convention site for United Soccer coaches. Um, they have a, a huge convention every January and that's where the draft has been held every year previously. But of course this year, uh, they decided months ago that that draft would be, uh, that convention would be held virtually. So they're just going to, uh, stream the draft. So you won't have, um, as far as I know, we're not going to have all of the, the coaches all in one room, uh, cause that would be kind of problematic right now, but The entire draft will stream live on Twitch, Wednesday the 13th, starting 7 p.m. Eastern. It usually takes about four hours, believe it or not. Um, And the league released the draft order and the reason behind the draft order. So normally, the order of the draft is based on the standings, the regular season standings of the previous season. So for the January 2020 draft, they just took the order of the 2019 regular season and flipped it. So the first place team is last in the order. The last place team is first in the order. And of course we have a lot of trades of picks. So all of it gets adjusted because of that. Now for 2021, we had no 2020 regular season to determine the order on. So what the league has decided to do is the order is based on the standings after the preliminary stage of the NWSL Challenge Cup. And of course, there was a couple exceptions to that because Louisville, the new expansion team coming into the league in 2021, they weren't in the Challenge Cup, so they will get the first pick, which is traditional for an expansion team. And Orlando, they had to miss the the Challenge Cup. They are slotted into the fourth spot so basically, Louisville in first, Portland in second because they finished last in the standings, and then just going reverse from there except Orlando slotting in the middle. So it sounds kind of complicated. It's actually pretty straightforward, and the easiest thing to do is just to look at the order online. If you go to nwslsoccer.com, click on the, the draft article. They've got a great link to the order, and of course, between now and January 13th, we could see some of those picks change or rather who holds those picks change as clubs make trades, uh, just like we saw with Kelly O'Hara um, being acquired by Washington Spirit earlier this week. Uh, one of the the mechanisms uh, with that is if she plays a certain number of games for the Washington Spirit, then the Spirit will have to give Utah Uh, one of their picks in the 2022 draft. So highly recommend checking out nwslsoccer.com. And of course, um, I will have more draft coverage moving forward. So hope that kind of clears that up. Jen Cooper, the keeper here, talking with Travis Clark from Topdrawersoccer.com. Travis writes a lot of great college soccer, a little bit of high school soccer stuff. I mean, Travis, you're, you're just on top of all the players that are moving from high school to college and, and more importantly for us, college to uh, the pro world. So this year has to have been really strange for you, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it's strange for everybody. Let's be, you know, I don't want to be dismissive of it, but the fact that we are where we are now, what between, if you're looking at the college level where you had in women's soccer, you, you had, you know, the Big 12, SEC, and ACC all play somewhat small seasons. You have a potential spring championship. I say potential just because you never know with the way things go. Although I feel like at this point, they're going to try to cram them in as best they can. And then, you know, from a club perspective, while there were some normalcies, you had national signing day, which for the listeners that may not know, that's kind of the when the official signing window opens for the senior class to sign a national letter, letter intent that says you're going to a school. Even though I believe in most cases, in all cases, the player has already been accepted into the school. It's just kind of a ceremonial thing. It's a little bit mm-hmm. bigger in the basketball and football world, obviously, but. You have that. That that was a little bit normalcy in in early November, but you're looking at the club soccer landscape, which is in some ways reflective of the national response to the pandemic where it's splintered. You have 50 different things going in 50 different places. You have clubs in California that are still not allowed to play. You even look at, I think, Santa Clara County, if I'm not mistaken, where they're officially, like, team sports are banned for a couple of weeks where i know the stanford football team has to like play its home games in washington state or something crazy like that going on and then you have club leagues the uh, you know the elite elite clubs national league is actually having one of their national events this weekend even though division one recruiting is still in a dead period so it's i've been trying to you know i try to track thousands of players men's and women's and you add a pandemic and who's playing and who's not and it 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 doesn't make anything easier although college I should say there are fewer teams to pay attention to this year which did make it a little bit easier just a little
0: right (laughs) right it's like up is down north is south you know hot is cold everything is kind of flipped um it and and of course for me what's strange is with uh, everything uh you know all sports having been affected that Different sports are being played in different times than they normally would be. So it's really strange, like in August, to flip on the TV and there's, you know, NBA basketball. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like, what time of yeah, year is it? Yeah. I'm really
2: confused, you know? It'll get really weird when, if they're assuming the D1 championships go ahead for the fall season in the spring. I think it'll be weird to have that. And I think it's scheduled in May. That'll be weird. Yeah. And then yeah. have a season again, like two months later. Uh, assuming again, things are close to normal ish as they will be, which you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, they are looking trended in a better. positive direction. But I, I think that's the spring soccer season will be really, really kind of strange, especially for from what we do, because we're so from our website, it's very, it's not super the same every year, but you know, we follow the schedule of the club season. And then the spring club soccer is a little bit more prominent because just there's no college soccer, at least competitively. So, uh, but I think if you think the basketball thing was weird, this is probably going to be even weirder.
0: (laughs) Definitely. And now we know, you know, we we have the date for the NWSL draft. It'll be Wednesday, January 13th. But, of course, you do have, you know, like you mentioned, the NCAA tournament is scheduled for mid-April to mid-May. We did have three big conferences play this fall. Um, Many will try to play again in the spring. Some won't at all. Like, we already know the Ivy Ivy League isn't, um, you know, so they had no fall sports, and it sounds like they're having no, no spring sports. So... I feel like the landscape for these college players is so much broader than it's ever been where you have the player not just deciding the usual, well, do I want to declare for the NWSL draft, but it's, well, do I ask NCAA for an extra year of eligibility because this has been a weird year or a year where I didn't get to play? Um, Do I declare for the draft and still stick with my school in the spring and join NWSL late. If I get drafted, you know, do I not declare and see what happens the following year? I mean, from, from where you stand, your coverage of this, you know, what kind of, um, what kind of decisions do you think these players are going to make?
2: Yeah. And that's a really good question. I think you can start with there's one group where the very pro Centric players who have, you know, and a lot of, uh, I don't want to say they all go to North Carolina, but I feel like a lot of players prepare to go pro after as a senior after December.
0: Mm-hmm. So a
2: lot of players will take an extra summer course here, there over their four years. And then by the end of, you know, December of their senior year, then they're, they're good to go. They're ready to go. But uh, then, so for those players that had, you know, have the pro dreams are in position to make it, they, I'd be curious to know, I haven't even kind of dug into this, but the scenario where it's like, well, what if they've had a bad year or they didn't play and they already or was to graduate, can they then stay for the spring semester? That's something I need to, I'm making a mental note to check into that because that's a, another scenario that you did that could come into play. But, you know, I think for the pro driven player, I think it's a pretty easy decision. And then I think a lot of it will depend on where the degree is because there's often cases, and I'm sure you've heard of this before, where players will, drafted, and I I want to say Amani Dorsey was in this case. I know Emily Menjez is the center back at Portland Thorns where she was drafted, but then Portland actually would fly her back and forth so she could finish her senior mm. semester. I think Amani Dorsey kind of just, I think she was drafted by Sky Blue, if I'm not mistaken, and yes. didn't even join the team until after she was done in her senior semester of her spring, oh, sorry, spring semester of her senior year. So there's yeah. a lot of those cases, and I think with NWSL where you're you know, let, let's be honest, if you're not on the U.S. women's national team track, if you're not if you're in line for a pretty big endorsement, that kind of a thing, then – and, uh, you know, as I think we were discussing, I think, before the show recorded that the NWSL pushed it back their the start of the regular season to May, that opens things up, I think, to make it a little bit of a decision where, okay, let's see where I'm drafted, I and then CWA and NWSL looks like they're working towards that you will still have your eligibility after you're drafted. Um, you know, obviously after that, it'll kind of depend on what the team needs. If there's space for you on a roster, those are sorts of scenarios that are difficult to know. Cause it's going to be, you know, player by player, case by case where, you know, do I need to be in camp to earn a roster spot or else I'm not going to have a spot or like the coach will be like, okay, no, we're going to have this spot open for you. Or there's a little more flexibility. And I know that the rules have gotten a little bit more flexible. Whereas if this happened like two or three years ago, it would be pretty much like, oh no, you have to come or else you're not going to get a spot on the team, right? So right. I think that flexibility may give players a chance to stay in school, to play one more season. Although another wrinkle to that is what if they play their spring season and they get hurt, that's like a serious injury. And like if they do an ACL or something, unfortunate, like a you know, sad like that, that's right. something to con- take into consideration too where you're going to have a little bit of risk where, you know, maybe that throw your pro hopes so into a, l- a bit of a lurch than if you were just like, all right, I'm going to go for the pro opportunity, finish my classes however I can. So I think, you know, player by player, team by team, program by program, it's all going to be a very, you know, challenging series of decisions to make. And it's hard to really speak with with a sense of like, oh, this is definitely going to happen for these players. But um, it certainly adds a wrinkle and a few more storylines to follow as kind of the, the start of 21 2021 progresses. Well,
0: and selfishly, I'm like, well, this will make my preparation for the draft a little simpler, because I would kind of assume that anybody that didn't play this fall is not going to declare, right? Now, I could be completely wrong about that. Um, And then, of course, we also have the factor of, um, you know, the last two drafts, they've allowed for players to... Uh, leave college early to declare for the draft. So you also have that yeah. that factor factor in there, and of course, you know the big asterisk that everybody's looking at for the number one pick this this January is is that going to be Katarina Macario,
2: right? Um, yeah, I and I think in her case too, that's going to be even more because you're looking at the you know the national championship uh, favorites. They. Oh without her they are a much different team as you'd imagine but how like in her scenario can you know does she declare for the draft but then hold off like does US soccer say well you can make the olympic team if you turn pro so you can't play at Stanford in the spring even though Stanford is arguably you know easily top 3 right environments you know you look at the players that come through and draft from that program every year and the level they play at then it's almost like, well, is that really fair to do to a player? Although it's kind of unfair to players if they have a really good, let's say, NWL Challenge Cup, which is the beginning of the year. Does that player deserve a look into a camp? And, you know, we have those sort of strange contractual obligations of the federation, which, you know, how is that handled for someone like Macario to consider as well? Does she become an allocated player? I'm sure she'll be in the draft if she's declared ineligible. But you can go beyond her for teams that, you know, examples of players that – they didn't play in the fall. Looks slated to play in the spring. You know, a couple of our teammates, Madison Haley, looks like a pretty solid prospect. Also a forward at Stanford, Kiki Pickett, outside back. You know, very very good player. A few UCLA players, Delaney Sheehan, Deanna corta Karina Rodriguez. You know, what what, what kind of decisions they make? And then, I know we're speculating here. Maybe you can fill me in. But like, what if a player says, well, I don't want to be declared for the draft, but Hey, in May or June, I'll be looking for a team. Like what what opportunities will that present? What will be there for players like that? Will there be opportunities in WSL, or will it be Well the you know, rules kind of looking to go to Europe the, or bust? The rules right
0: now, and of course these these could be modified because it's been, you know, everything has been upended. The rules right now is if you do not if you don't declare for the draft, you are ineligible for NWSL for that entire calendar year. And okay. the the reasoning behind that is they were trying to avoid having college players skip the draft and then try to right. sign with sign with the team like we're
2: going to work it. out its ideal yeah
0: yeah and and that's that we'll we'll call that the Brin's daughter. Rule that Dag- that happened with Boston was trying to talk to Dagny Brin's daughter after she graduated from Florida State, and she had not declared for the draft. You know, she wasn't part of the draft. And a few months later, they were trying to sign her, and the league was like, "You can claim her in discovery, but she- you can't actually sign her until next year, right?" Um, yeah. So, so that's that's why it's like even the, even if there's players who don't have any intention of joining NWSL immediately at a college, you will see a lot of declarations of people planning to go to Europe so that if they choose to come back that same year, they can still play in the league. Now that's all of that is OK. That's that's what the rule has been it'll be interesting to see if, if there's any modifications. I mean, we know from the announcement of the NWSL draft date that they said they've, you know, they're asking um, NCAA if it's, if it's okay that, you know, players declare for the draft, then get drafted and have the choice to go, no, nah, I'm not going to go pro yet. Um, of course, I, I don't see why that would matter. It's like, as long as they haven't, you know, Actually showed up to suit up for a team, right like at a yeah. like because like, isn't isn't baseball the same way where there are players college players that'll get drafted and just choose to stay one more year with their team but yeah that's
2: that's a whole other yeah. rabbit hole I of hockey double a I, <laughs> I think hockey is i see you know I don't follow the NHL draft at all, so I'm speaking way out of turn, but I feel like I saw instances of players that gets drafted and the team rec- retains the rights and yeah. they sometimes elect to play NCAA versus not. So, and then in baseball, generally speaking, you have to be a junior in order to perhaps or either it's a certain age thing, whether you're a sophomore or junior, and uh-huh. you do have the option to go back for your senior year, but most players don't turn that down because it's not like they're going to make more money or what have you. But I, I don't know why, it should be an issue if these players can get drafted. And a lot of them stay in schools any, school anyway. So if they want to you know, compete for that spring title, if they're a key part of the program and want to finish the degree while also playing and staying sharp and getting prepped for the you know, pros, if they can work that out with their team and their program, it shouldn't be a, to- a totally huge issue, I feel like.
0: Yeah, yeah. Or maybe that that was something they just wanted to state to make it clear that it's like, hey, you can go ahead and, and declare for the draft.
2: Yeah. That, I mean, considering it's the NCAA, you probably want, you want to reassure people that, Hey, even though you're applying for this, like it doesn't make you ineligible. Should you decide to do that? Because I feel like some players may be like, well, I don't want to apply for the draft. If that means I get drafted and then my, as far as I understand that shouldn't take away their eligibility. But again, right. I think it's if you like go and turn up for a camp I don't even know about that at this point. I have to look up the NCAA rule again. uh,
0: (laughs) Another rabbit
2: hole. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We don't need to wander too far down that one.
0: Yeah. And then having a spring championship, so it'll be the first time that the NCAA women's soccer tournament will be a spring event. Uh, They're going to reduce it to 48 teams from 64, and it's been 64 I think, 20 plus years now, right? But, but it makes sense if you have fewer programs um, playing, you know, that, that you reduce that. Um, so I, I think yeah, it's going to be about, really it, interesting I'm, to see
2: how that plays out. I think that it's more about just narrowing the amount of time that it takes to play out. If I that too. To guess. Not to mention, just you, know, you scale it back because you want to fit it in. You want to limit facility uses. I haven't even... There hasn't been an extensive, an set of announcements about what, at least as the major programs, I haven't seen a lot about the what the spring schedule actually look like. Like, i.e., will there be any non-conference games? Will they try to do right. that? What does it mean for the teams that played in the fall? You know, are Florida State already in the spring championship? I'd assume so. I mean, they're going to make the the tournament anyway. You'd feel like whether or not their ACC fall bid counts, but I don't think they would replay the ACC tournament in the spring, you know, because that's another sort of series of events you want to shrink into one schedule. So that that's going to be interesting. I, I, at the end of the day, though, not to sound disrespectful, but it's almost like, well, 48 or 64 – because in women, the way women's soccer has been, at least of late, it's really difficult. You know, you have a Georgetown that makes a run. I shouldn't disrespect Dave Nolan. If you, if he's listening to this, he'll call me and yell at me. But, um, you know, you don't have a lot of the uh, unheralded smaller programs making it to the, you know, the national championship. So you're not going to have, you know, the ninth place team in a smaller conference make a run. Obviously they won't be there in the tournament to begin with, but you'll look at it. You will probably expect, I think, the 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 way to frame it if you're looking at it from a competitive like who will win is if you know someone like Stanford doesn't have Kat Macario. If you know what happens to North Carolina does their sort of depth, but maybe not like, you know, Emily Fox, Taylor Otto a couple of their seniors, but they have a lot more there, even though they lost their two talented English women's national team players. Is it didn't play at all in the fall. Like, you know, does North Carolina become more of a favorite because they kind of like lean more towards playing a bunch of players versus um, you know, another approach, you know, Florida State, do they lose Malia, Malia Berkeley to NWSL? She's one of their, their big center backs, their seniors. And, you know, they have, they don't have a lot of seniors, but they have pretty good seniors that made a difference. And does that impact? Does Jalen Howell go pro early? So I think it's more perspective of like, okay, who's actually going to play? So we won't know till February. <laughs> but just, and that could make things a little bit crazier and a little weirder where we could, you know, maybe that field of 48 maybe you have a less heralded program that maybe doesn't have the blue chip talent, got, you know, women that will turn pro and that then open, their doors open because a Florida state doesn't have, you know, a talented player. And so they win in a quarterfinal or something, something crazy like that potentially yeah. could happen. I could definitely see that.
0: Yeah. Cause, cause their roster has been untouched. So yeah, you've got yeah. The, the advantage of, of consistency now. It, it's going to be, Oh, I, I mean, I can't wait to watch it all unfold, right? Because it's just so different than, than what we've ever had. And we also had, you know, last month, three conference tournaments, at least three conference tournaments, I think. Um, but, you know, all of SEC and ACC were televised. I think it was crazy, impressively crazy, that SEC, they just said, okay, all 14 teams are in. Um, So they had... What it was, a five, six match days, you know, over a ten day period. So, if a team yeah. from the bottom four had made it all the way to the final, they would have ended up playing, you know, five matches in in ten days. Obviously, the the lower seats didn't, but it was like, wow, you know, they got that done. They just, um, you know, sequestered all those they crammed, players. They and orange it in. beat, okay. out of, yeah.
2: I think they started on like a Friday and then it went, Yeah. you know, seven, eight, nine, ten days, whatever, whatever, how many other days that is. And then, yeah. you know, they had the lower, you know, the higher seeds obviously joining, having played less games, which gives them an advantage. And you know, Vanderbilt actually ended up winning, which is not a huge upset, but um, they went on a massive scoring spree, which was interesting. Scoring, I think they equaled or exceeded how many, you know, they said like four 13 goals in the eight games of the quote unquote regular season, and then they managed to you know score 14 amongst four games. So they caught fire at the right time, which is kind of what you you'd be looking to do at that stage of a college season for sure. But it was it was fascinating to watch them cram it all in too, as you said.
0: Yeah, and of course the ACC ACC tournament always so so competitive, um, and you know I'm watching these conference tournaments and you're like, of course, you know, seven to eight teams from these conference make the NCAA tournament every year because you see just how insanely close, you know, those games are. So, you know, really looking forward to see who declares for the draft. I I was relieved to see uh, for the the draft, the Nibusel draft, that the deadline to register is actually no longer the night before the draft. Uh so <laughs> That's so, so, so news. yeah so I won't have any last minute like oh you need to research this player too um and of course th- the tough thing is we won't get to have like a big event at the United Soccer Coaches convention because they already announced months ago that that would be a virtual convention so it I guess it'll probably be something more like the the Louisville expansion draft but one of the things I'm really excited about for the players coming out of college right now is, so we're we're getting back a 10th team, right? We haven't had 10 NWSL teams since the 2017 season. So we're getting a whole nother set of roster slots and rosters are bigger now, right? Last, you know, that last year they went uh, up to, to 26 and um, or rather 2019, they went up to 26. And mm-hmm. next year we add another set of roster slots with Angel City FC. So I feel like at least we have that alignment of this is the weirdest time, but there are more opportunities than there have been before. So we're not going to lose players the way when Boston breakers folded in early 2018 and boom, Mm -hmm. there goes there go 20 roster spots and Boston's best players got absorbed by the other teams. You saw almost no rookies get time. No college players get time, right? Because there just wasn't space for them, um, you know. So I feel like those players had to go elsewhere, or drop out, or just you know wait a while longer. But so I, I feel like at least we've got that overlap of expansion with this strange time, so that those those great players coming yeah. out of college have some really great opportunities.
2: Yeah, I mean that that's definitely. Significant because you can also. I mean, if you're a top player who's a senior now, do you then think about? And I know that you asked this question earlier, and I didn't necessarily address it, but a lot of that will come down to what kind of money is available in terms of scholarship. Because I'm not sure the ins and outs. Again, we're going down to a rabbit hole, but it's you know there has to be the scholarship available if a player wants to stay on. No, either that or she has to pay. Or you know find out other ways to cover that if she wants to stay for her extra year of eligibility at least as far as again as far as I that's as far as I understand it so you know do you if you're a top player do you want to stick around like maybe Galen Howell's a junior right so does she want to turn pro now consider that and be like I'll be a building block for Louisville maybe a you know a outside chance at an Olympic spot or does she think well hey look who's probably going to be the number one overall team. Picking in the draft in 2022, I see uh, you know that can come into play when you're thinking about future opportunities and that kind of a thing. Because yeah, you know, with more with That's more really slots, not to mention, not to mention, the math will be much easier. At least this year, with you know, you only have 10 teams. There's four rounds. Boom, 40 easy. Not that that was ever hard, but like the 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 that also I think what we were talking about before when we were looking at the. The ability of players to go back to school, if you have the 26 roster spots, you have more teams, does that either, A, increase pressure on players to, well, you got to make that decision now, we need to eat you in, or does that give you more, like I talked about, the flexibility part? Like, you have 26 spots, so we're only going to sign 23 players, and we have two drafted players who we think will come in, finish their college eligibility, finish their degree, compete in the spring season, and then... They can just latch onto their team or at least get that extended like trial, quote unquote, with the team that drafted them. So that I feel like will be an interesting storyline and the, the trends will be clearer once we're, you know, in, I guess, January, February, provided there's, you know, the rule are transparent and within NCAA, you never know.
0: Well, and I like that you mentioned that, you know, a player has to decide, you know, the financial part because if, if you're not familiar with how NCAA soccer works, you might just assume, oh, yeah, she just stays an extra year. It's like, well, not every player is on a full scholarship. There are only, is it, I
2: think, 14 yeah.
0: um, scholarships, I believe. Yeah. So that's, And that's only if anyway. the program is
2: fully funded, which most are. Right. But just a so you could
0: be on a half scholarship you could be on a well all your tuition is paid but not you know other yeah. expenses or it could be well it's just you know a quarter tuition and your books are paid so yeah there is a factor of you know do i have the funds for that um so
2: so many factors that's in, um, that also impacts like future recruiting too and how much like if a player wants to stay for 22 then yeah you know, does a coach need to find money elsewhere for these players that you know again a lot of the players have committed earlier than you know pretty early so then it's and again this is i'm speculating a lot but it's worth pointing out that there's a lot of nuances and more it's not just say like, oh you want to stay here you go here's a spot it's more okay what do we have how does it We all have fit a space together, for you to stay players? yeah like yeah, they have a roster a really spot for point. sure but it's whether of you know you want to pay for your last year of school, your last spring semester. So um, I think that those are the things we will never really know about either because those kind of things are – there's not as much transparency. Not that there has to be, but it's just one thing to keep in mind. It's like you don't necessarily always know why X, Y, or Z happens when you're looking at college soccer and the churn in a roster. Exactly.
0: Well, Travis, thank you so much for taking the time to talk college soccer with me. Um, It's been a very weird time um, understatement, of course, but um, I think you and I are both looking forward to what's going to play out this spring.
2: Yep. It's going to be, as you said before, it's going to be really weird, but it'll be also pretty exciting and uh, maybe a little bit even more to talk to. And I think as you noted, The the president of an expansion team, especially in a year like this, is a a reason to be even more thankful for the, the, I guess, the month we have between now and the draft.
0: All right, time to wrap it up with the back four. First and foremost, we've had... A lot of player movement this week. Kelly O'Hara being traded by Utah to Washington Spirit. Also had Spirit sign another Japanese international. We saw Louisville sign uh, a Swedish midfielder. Um, I'm sure we'll see a lot more movement in the next several weeks as, uh, you know, players uh, teams start preparing for. 2021, right? Uh, We know Louisville is probably going to sign some more players. So the easiest way to keep up with who's on what team uh, is just check out the Google sheet of rosters that I have linked at KeeperNotes.com. You should definitely bookmark this page, KeeperNotes.com. Click on WOSO Nerd Links. A lot of great links there. Definitely something you want to bookmark. And as we talked about a lot in this episode, the 2021 NWSL Draft, that is the college draft, but they're calling it the NWSL Draft, set for Wednesday, January 13th. There will be a live stream of the entire draft uh, starting at 7 p.m. Eastern on Twitch. So be sure to mark your calendars for that. Another great thing you find if uh, you check out WOSO Nerd Links on KeeperNotes.com, Uh, is you can pre-order the 2020 Keeper Notes Almanac. That is the almanac that has every season of NWSL in it. It's about a 370-page book these days. It'll have Challenge Cup, Fall Series, all the previous seasons, player registry, photos, coach registry, records, all kinds of great stuff. Um, There's also a Dash Almanac you can buy uh, for the previous seasons. There's also a Challenge Cup special booklet for the Dash. um, And I'll be working on other publications in 2021 as well. You can buy print, you can buy PDF, or you can buy both. And last but not least, uh, as we're getting into holiday shopping season, I will be posting uh, some Links about fun things you can buy, whether it's for U.S. national team, NWSL clubs, other WOSO specific gifts. You can also check out some of the links I have on KeeperNotes.com. I have a couple of t-shirts I've designed um, and some other unique items posted if you check out store. All right, that's it for this episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. Uh, Got to give a shout out to all the listeners who... Send me comments, ask questions, share this with friends, subscribe, etc. Much appreciated. Big shout out, of course, to IcarusFC.com uh, for their support of the podcast and all the podcasts on the Beautiful Game Network. Uh, if you're looking for a completely custom kit for your youth club or Sunday league team, definitely check out IcarusFC.com. And as always, many thanks to Sean for making this podcast possible. But now she's
2: Let's go. Yeah.